welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction welcome to this talc talk which is part of module 10 skills for complex conversations. Today I'm going to talk about those delicate DNA CPR conversations and try and think about how we can use our consultation skills to make our approaches to this aspect of clinical care truly sensitive to the individual. There are written materials about this in module 10. And this chapter focuses on the skills which are needed to have an appropriate conversation about cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which I'm now going to call CPR. For many individuals, this is a highly suitable intervention. Yet there remains the possibility that for some people, it will be more appropriate to record a do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation, otherwise known as a DNA CPR decision. This can make for a more peaceful, dignified death in some situations and can avoid the distressing effects of inappropriate CPR in a patient whose death is inevitable. When there is uncertainty about the likely success of CPR, then the patient's own views become of crucial importance. Now, in some situations, discussions with patients will cover other issues relating to their end-of-life care. The umbrella term for this is advanced care planning and there can be several different aspects to consider including statements of wishes, possible advanced decisions to refuse treatment, appointing someone to have lasting power of attorney for health and welfare or expressing wishes about organ donation or preferred place of death. Although discussions about these complex matters will use many of the same skills that we're going to talk about in this talk talk, I'm going to confine myself to discussions about CPR during this talk. Clinicians who anticipate conversations about resuscitation, death and dying need to prepare themselves psychologically. Sometimes clinicians or even loved ones feel under pressure to avoid difficult, sensitive or disturbing subjects because they fear that discussions may cause unnecessary distress without much benefit. However, our regulatory bodies state very clearly that clinicians must be willing to engage in discussions of this nature. For example, the GMC duties of a doctor says, you must listen to patients, take account of their views and respond honestly to their questions. You must work in partnership with patients, sharing with them the information they will need to make decisions about their care, including their condition, its likely progression and the options for treatment, including associated risks and uncertainties. In October 2007, the joint statement Decisions Relating to Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation by the Royal College of Nursing, the Resuscitation Council UK and the BMA, which is called the Joint Statement, included the comment that some health professionals do not find it easy to discuss CPR with their patients but this must not prevent discussion, either to inform patients of a decision 
or to involve patients in the decision-making process where appropriate. Thus, clinicians can approach such conversations with confidence, knowing that even when the subject matter is difficult or uncertain, discussion with patients or their loved ones is an essential part of clinical practice. Iona Heath, a very wise previous president of the Royal College of General Practitioners, made this comment. Dying permeates living, and yet much of the public response to death and dying remains polarised between sensationalism and silence. There can be no life without death, can there? Yet modern medical practice often seems to view death as a failure of treatment or as something to be postponed as long as possible, as if the quantity of life is more important than any consideration of its quality. But clinicians cannot respond with silence to the challenges of caring for those in the final stages of life. A professional response must include being willing and able to talk about death and dying collaboratively and compassionately. This clears the path for the dying patient to have a death which is peaceful, comfortable and calm, surrounded by those who care for them, without undignified, unsuitable or frankly harmful interventions. So in this talk talk, I'm aiming to provide some clarity about what exactly CPR or DNA CPR might mean in clinical practice. Who is legally able to make DNA CPR decisions and in what circumstances? How to enter discussions about CPR or DNA CPR with patients or relatives? How to ensure that what matters to the patient is really taken into account? How to respond to the emotions evoked when discussing the end of life? And how to record and review the decisions that are made? So let's think first of all about what CPR or DNA CPR might mean in clinical practice. Being able to perform CPR is an important skill for clinicians and it can be used with good effect even by lay bystanders who encounter a healthy person whose heart has stopped unexpectedly. However, clinicians also need the skills to be able to discuss the harms and futility of CPR in other situations. All clinicians need to be able to engage in discussions with patients or their relatives to ensure that each individual's preferences and feelings about the end of life are honoured fully. When CPR succeeds in prolonging the life of a young, fit footballer, the public is rightly impressed and relieved by the power of modern medical techniques. In films and on TV, this success is portrayed in many scenes where CPR is swiftly followed by full recovery. In this situation, when the heart stops, it would normally be the beginning of the dying process. As the rest of the body still has the capacity to function, CPR can maintain blood flow until the heart problem itself can be treated definitively, for example with defibrillation. And that means recovery is possible. This is what happens when the heart stops in an otherwise healthy person. In clinical practice, however, especially in hospitals, a patient's heart may stop in circumstances very different to those where a young footballer suffers an unpredictable arrhythmia, which is a true cardiac arrest. Patients are often extremely ill, sometimes with many comorbidities and frailties. When the heart stops in these circumstances, it is the final event in a severe, 
complex terminal illness, which could be thought of as resulting in ordinary dying rather than a cardiac arrest. In this situation, CPR is doomed to failure because the rest of the body has already ceased to function. Even if the heart restarts, the patient returns to the state they were in just before the heart stopped, still frail, still within the dying process. If they survive longer, they may also have brain damage. So how likely is CPR to be successful? Clearly, this is a difficult question to generalise about. In the resources attached to this chapter, there is an online calculator and various reports have attempted to quantify the results of CPR. Sudden cardiac arrest due to isolated cardiac problems carries the best prognosis and the UK Resuscitation Council states that about 9% of people who have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survive to hospital discharge. These reports do not state how many of those are discharged in good health with no brain damage or without other sequelae. Bear in mind about 30% of the group studied were under 65 and therefore much more likely to have an isolated cardiac problem rather than generalised frailty. Lucy Pollock reported an audit of in-hospital resuscitations and she quotes a survival rate of 4 to 5% in those over 80 years old who were previously active with few comorbidities and presenting solely with a cardiac condition. None of these survivors had presented initially with strokes, pneumonias or surgical conditions. So let's think about this in a little bit more detail. One or two patients in this age group with comorbidities came through resuscitation attempts each year in the hospital population under audit. However, for them, survival often simply meant discharge to a nursing home for 24-hour nursing care with persistent confusion and death following soon afterwards. Many patients and families decided against repeated CPR attempts after these experiences. It's also worth noting that Pollock found that many of the so-called survivors turned out not to have had cardiac arrests in the first place, but they had had vasovagal episodes or other problems without any actual stopping of the heart. Clinicians need to have the skills to discuss these issues sensitively and confidently so that patients and their loved ones can understand any decisions that may be made and participate in shared decision-making if there is uncertainty about the best approach. It is not always clear to those concerned that a DNA CPR statement does not mean that all other treatments will be avoided. Active treatment of all kinds, with hope of improvement, can and will normally be continued in any case. It is only the potential futility or harm from attempts at resuscitation that are in question here. Some patients or their relatives may construe a DNA CPR notice as evidence of abandonment, of giving up on the patient, or of actively hastening death, rather than an expression of the futility of such treatment, or of a considered choice about the manner of death. Therefore, it's important for patients and their relatives to understand the purposes of CPR more fully in order to know when an attempt is appropriate and when it becomes a futile or distressing intervention. 
So who is legally able to make DNA CPR decisions and in what circumstances? Discussing CPR for cardiac arrest and the related concept of do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation can be daunting for clinicians. Death is an emotional experience in most circumstances. Approaching a conversation to discuss the manner of death can cause clinicians a bit of trepidation because they worry about getting it wrong or about being the bearer of bad news. Clinicians and patients or relatives can be confused about the purposes of a conversation to discuss recording a DNA CPR. The legal case of Tracy versus Adam Brooks has added to this complexity. In that case, a woman who was already gravely ill with multiple carcinomatous metastases was sadly involved in a car crash that also rendered her tetraplegic. The family were dismayed to discover that her notes contained the instruction do not attempt resuscitation, without this decision having been discussed with the woman herself or her family. What did the judgment in that case actually show? This is important and interesting. The judge said that any DNA CPR decision is, and I quote, a decision which concerns a patient's personal autonomy, integrity, dignity and quality of life. The judgment also emphasised that, again I quote, the claimant in the present case is not complaining about the substantive decision to withhold CPR. It is about aspects of the procedure which led to the making of decision and aspects of the policy which governs the making of DNA CPR decisions. The judge accepted that in certain circumstances it is reasonable to decide that a specific treatment is futile. That means the treatment has little or no chance of successful outcomes. It is legally accepted that no clinician can be required to attempt futile treatments. However, the judgment also mandated that those most closely concerned should be informed if there is a decision that a potential treatment is considered futile, for example resuscitation. This usually means talking to the patient themselves, although others may be involved if the patient lacks capacity. Providing explanations and information about decisions does not mean that patients or relatives are being asked to make that decision themselves. This is a very important distinction. If CPR is considered futile, then it is the clinician who has the responsibility to make that decision. They need to share that decision appropriately and the key issue is that the discussion should take place in a timely and sensitive manner and that the outcome should be recorded properly in the notes. If there is uncertainty about the appropriate course of treatment, of which resuscitation is only one example, then of course there must be discussion with the relevant people, which usually means the patient themselves. The patient's own preferences, feelings and thoughts must then be taken into account as a shared decision is made. There's more information about this in TALC Module 4, Chapter 7. If the patient lacks capacity to discuss such decisions, for example, if they are unconscious or delirious or suffering from severe dementia, for example, then the discussion must still be discussed with relevant family or friends, 
However, in this case, the final decision making will rest with the clinicians. The discussion can be used to glean information about the patient's preferences and desires if they are known or if they've been discussed or if they can be inferred from what they've previously said or done. Taking this extra information into account means the clinicians caring for the patient who lacks capacity will be able to make a final decision. Being aware of this background to DNAR-CPR discussions means that clinicians need to have the skills to broach these matters honestly and openly while remaining sensitive to the individual needs of the patient. And this latter point is very crucial. Discussions about CPR relate only to a particular individual person and their very specific circumstances, needs and wishes. There can never be any class action approaches which could in effect imply that, for example, no person with learning difficulties or over the age of X years or with pre conditions like leukaemia or any other characteristics can be considered for resuscitation. There can be no such general statements. The decision must always be made with each specific individual for their own specific circumstances. So how can clinicians enter discussions about CPR with patients or relatives. A resuscitation attempt that's doomed to fail may remove dignity and rob that patient of a calmer death. Explaining this carefully and skillfully will allow many people to have the peaceful, natural and calm death that they wish for. So how can clinicians approach such an important yet delicate conversation? First of all, there needs to be some preparation for the clinician. In advance of the conversation, the clinician needs to be prepared and clear in their own minds about the nature of the conversation. Have they and the team considered the clinical situation and decided that CPR is likely to be futile? In that case, the discussion will be about explaining that information sensitively and exploring the prognosis while always allowing for the patient or their families to have different views. In that situation, the discussion is explaining a decision rather than asking to discuss a decision. However, if there is uncertainty about the likely outcome of CPR or about whether the individual patient considers CPR to be an appropriate step, then the conversation will proceed towards shared decision-making personalising the care plan to the specific requirements of that individual. What does this individual want to happen if their breathing or heart stops? In that case, it's useful to talk about attempting CPR or trying CPR, as this will convey the intrinsic uncertainty of the intervention right from the start. If there is a possibility of successful CPR, with a chance of success that the patient considers to be worth that attempt, and clearly CPR should be attempted as necessary. Note here that it is the patient who makes the judgment about whether CPR is worth it. The clinician's task is to make an assessment of how likely CPR is to succeed or fail, and in particular to make an assessment as to whether CPR is likely to be futile. The capacity of the patient to make a decision must also be considered if they have capacity for that decision, then the discussion should normally be with the patient themselves. 
If the clinician assesses that the patient lacks capacity, for example, if they are unconscious, then the discussion will take place with their legal deputy if they have delegated power of attorney specifically for their health and welfare. If there's no one with such power of attorney, the clinician can ask loved ones for information about the patient's prior wishes and feelings, where they can be known or inferred from their behaviour. The clinician can also try to ascertain whether the patient has already expressed preferences in advance about attempts at CPR, which might then simply need to be reviewed in case their views have changed over time. Asking a question such as, did he put together any sort of document about his wishes? Some people have a living will or an advanced care plan. Can be helpful. Remembering it is entirely legitimate for patients to change their minds about their preferences at any time. A valid and applicable advanced decision to refuse treatment for CPR is as legally binding as the lasting power of attorney for health and welfare. Thus, it will be obvious that this conversation is really a potential cascade of conversations, which may go in very different directions depending on the patient's capacity, the clinically assessed potential effectiveness or futility of CPR, and what matters most to the patient and their loved ones in connection with what happens at the end of life. Prior to such a conversation, loved ones, the patient or the deputy, need to be prepared as well. In her publication, The Book About Getting Older for People Who Don't Want to Talk About It, geriatrician Lucy Pollock describes overhearing patients being asked, do you want to be resuscitated, as if they were being offered a cup of tea? This discussion is better done as part of a whole encounter, integrated into the process of creating explanations and personalised plans for future care skills which are fully explored in TALC modules 4 and 5. It's much better to signal that this conversation is coming by summarising the current clinical situation and the current treatment plans, followed by a statement that indicates more is to come. And here are some examples of helpful phrases that might be used. So when you get to the age of whatever that person is, anything can happen. Although I think you're doing well and I'm not expecting any sudden changes, it's always a good idea for us to have a think about what would happen if there was an emergency. Or, I need to turn our attention to a delicate matter now. Or, may I ask a delicate question? Or, there are still some important decisions to make that need I need to understand what really matters to you now. We have an important decision to make and I need to get a proper understanding of your wishes and a feel for how you'd like things to go in certain circumstances, as in, for example, if your heart stops or you stop breathing. Another phrase that can be helpful is to say, I would like to talk now about some important decisions about one specific aspect of your care, about what would happen if your heart or breathing stopped in an emergency. If resuscitation has been discussed and the clinical team feel it's futile, then there's a different kind of opening to this conversation. Something more like, I need to tell you about the outcome of the team's discussions about your care. We're not 100% sure though. Can we run this by you and get your thoughts? On balance, we observe that your condition now is, and summarise your condition, 
And that means that if your heart stops, it's most likely that any attempt at CPR will fail. This enables the patient and or the relatives to be prepared for the kind of discussion that's coming. We next need to ensure that what matters to the patient is fully taken into account. This means gathering information using all the skills of TALC 2, building effective relationships, and TALC 3, gathering information effectively. The clinician needs to establish the starting position for the discussion. Ask the patient about two important considerations. Firstly, what thoughts have they already had about what should happen if their heart or breathing stops? Which is another way of raising the question, what matters to you at the end of life? Secondly, what do they know already or what do they understand by the terms resuscitation and its possible effectiveness in their own situation? Responding to the discussion will mean the clinician using the skills of chunking and checking, picking up clues and cues and fully exploring the thoughts, concerns, worries and hopes of the patient and their loved ones. The conversation needs to explore what matters to this person and what thoughts they bring to end-of-life care issues. When talking with loved ones, it can be useful simply to ask, can you tell me about Mr So-and-so? What are they like as a person? This may open up important areas and help to clarify what the patient's own wishes might be if they can't express them for themselves. If resuscitation has been judged by the team as likely to be futile, the clinician could ask, would you like some information about what might happen at the end of your life? They can go on to explain the heart stopping not as the beginning of the dying phase, but as something signalling the end of the dying phase. Accuracy and honesty are the key here. If CPR is judged feasible, the clinician can open the discussion a bit further by saying there's a big range of feelings about the issue of resuscitation. Some people feel it's not what they want and other people feel they'd rather take a chance even if it's likely to fail. This can be followed by an exploration of how this particular individual actually views things themselves. The issue of what really matters now can help to focus attention on the patient's important hopes. Is length of life the priority or its comfort or quality? So asking questions like, as your time is likely to be limited, what is the most important thing for you right now? Or what are your hopes for the end of your life? Or what do you fear might happen at the end of life? The clinician can then focus their explanations and information giving toward what the patient themselves considers to be the key issues for them. These questions can enable helpful reassurance about matters such as pain, the place of death, who the patient would like to spend time with now and so on. Clearly the answers will be as varied as our patients. In these discussions, it will also be helpful to clarify that all other treatments and efforts to improve things will continue as usual. Lucy Pollock uses this helpful approach. We are planning lots of treatment for your current condition, but if you suddenly become disastrously ill and your heart or breathing actually stopped, then allowing a pause for the patient's response. 
This may reveal a patient who says, no, thank you, stop there, I don't want to be revived. On the other hand, a patient may look expectant and hopeful, which is a cue to tread carefully before explaining a bit further, saying something like, what usually happens automatically is that we rush over with our emergency dream to try and start your heart again, but with another pause. Sadly, that's something that doesn't usually work in people with your conditions, and many people tell me that it's not what they would want for themselves. The skill of chunking and checking is clearly very useful here. Pausing for a response or explicitly asking the patient, what's your response to all that? What are your thoughts now? This will often be a helpful and less stressful way to proceed. Depending on the response, the clinician may wish to offer further information, such as Lucy Pollock's very helpful phrasing. My worry is, sometimes we can bring people back, but they're not the person they were before. These kinds of approaches will usually enable a sensitive conversation to happen, with the clinician picking up on any clues or cues about the patient's feelings and thoughts, and being sure to invite responses and discussions. Sometimes this conversation happens with loved ones, where there is no capacity in the person being discussed. And in that case, it's again very important to start by explaining honestly what the current situation is and what treatment efforts are in place to try and help. Signalling that difficult material is coming can help everyone to prepare themselves. Please may I ask you a delicate question now. I want to do the right thing by your mum, dad, your loved one. If his heart actually stopped, we'd automatically call our emergency team but actually I have a feeling it's not what he or she would actually want and I'm worried it would stand such a tiny chance of bringing him back to the person he was and I don't want to do something that might make him even worse off than he is now. It's always important to emphasise all the other treatment possibilities. Sometimes families will also want to have discussions about other ceilings of care, for example about readmission to hospital and it can be helpful to create space for those concerns to be discussed. Lucy Pollock makes this comment. If a family are feeling uneasy about a very frail person, in whom resuscitation would clearly be inappropriate, I'm not afraid to say, this isn't actually your decision, it's a medical decision. I know you want to have your loved one to have a peaceful time at the end, and this is how we can ensure that. Catherine Mannix is a palliative care physician who has extensive experience of these conversations. She tells families about the true seriousness one of their loved one's condition by saying things like, they're actually sick enough to die from all their current illnesses. In other circumstances, or for example in primary care, the difficulties of attempting resuscitation can be signalled by saying something like, she looks okay at the moment, but you and I both know she's very fragile and could easily become sick enough to die. We're going to do all the things for your mum that might stand a chance of working, but if their heart did stop, trying to resuscitate them wouldn't bring them back to life. Gordon Caldwell also says it's important to emphasise the positive care that will be provided, saying something like, your health is now very frail and you're becoming more dependent. When you come to the natural end of your living, I recommend that we treat you with gentle care, kindness and respect, 
so that you can have the best chance of a peaceful, calm passing. Explaining the steps you're going to take to reduce pain, distress or loss of dignity may also be relevant at this point. Sometimes, even if clinicians think that resuscitation attempts are thoroughly futile, patients or relatives may still want an attempt to be made. There's no point really getting into an argument about this. There are costs to resuscitation, I mean literally financial costs, but also emotional costs to staff who may find pointless attempts disturbing and upsetting. But remember, the person themselves will not be aware of their undignified end. This situation rarely arises when patients have capacity, but sometimes family members are worried that they will seem to be uncaring or that a decision to not resuscitate cannot be readily explained to other members of the family. Offering further opportunities to discuss the matter after time for thought may help here. Similarly, it helps to clarify to relatives that they are not denying their loved one a treatment that might help them. Rather, by avoiding futile attempts at CPR, they will be preventing an undignified and uncomfortable end to life. So how can clinicians respond to the understandable emotions evoked when discussing end-of-life care? It's not easy for most people to contemplate their own death. And watching loved ones suffer severe illness and becoming aware that they are dying naturally evokes strong emotions. Clinicians can develop skills in identifying such emotions and responding empathically to them by using the skills of TALP Module 2, Building Effective Relationships. The RAV approach, recognising, validating and accepting all such emotions, can result in considerable relief, and this is covered in TALP Module 5-6, Therapeutic Conversations. It's painful to lose loved ones. However, there's no need for the clinician to try and fix this or try to make it all feel better. Although some people face death with equanimity or even seem to welcome it, for many, this is a time of natural grief and sadness. These are normal human responses and should be met with empathy and acceptance. Finally, an overall summary of what has been discussed will help to bring the discussion to a suitable close. Remember to include the facts, so this is the clinical assessment and the decisions you have made. And the feelings. You've been feeling whatever has come up as a result. Lucy Pollock's closing words are also worth reflecting on. I'm glad we've discussed this. We've made a good plan. But for now, let's stick to plan A and get you as better as we can. What we've done is about planning for the worst. At the same time, I'm hoping for the best. Clearly, it's important to record and to review decisions that have been made. So when a decision has been made, this should be recorded appropriately in the patient's records, both for the benefit of other clinicians and to help relatives understand the decision-making process if they ask about it later on. The recording process will begin by checking the understanding of patients or relatives using phrases such as, now we've talked this through and this is what I'm considering writing down. Can I run this by you? Is that what you were thinking too? Or, I think this is the decision we've got to. What thoughts are you having about it now? The 
clinician needs to be ready for further questions and reflections here. This could include worries about what has happened to other family members, concerns about how family will view the decision and so on. The clinician will remain open using their relationship building skills to show accurate empathy and to respond to any further questions with clear explanations which use plain language free of jargon. This DNA CPR form is to ensure that if your heart stops as part of the normal dying process, no one starts chest compressions on your body or uses an electric shock defibrillator to try and restart your heart. This is almost certain not to work, and if it did, your other vital organs would still not be working. When the decision has been made and recorded, offer to give the patient or relative a copy or a screenshot of any computerised notes. In some circumstances, relatives may wish to take a photo of the note on their mobile phone for reference and to help them explain the decision to other family members. DNA CPR forms should be made with several copies so that one can remain with the patient even if they're admitted to hospital and one can be at home. It's wise to ensure a copy is in the GP records also. Agreeing the decision and then sharing it in this transparent way very much reduces the likelihood of any subsequent conflicts or complaints. Remember, the decision should also be reviewed, perhaps the next day or at the next relevant conversation. Introducing this as something like, we discussed a lot of things yesterday or at our last meeting, including our decision about resuscitation. What are your thoughts about all that now? Or how are you feeling about all the things we talked about last time? What questions do you have now? Note that asking what questions you have now or what thoughts you have now is much more effective than simply saying, do you have any questions? That often leads to people saying no when they really mean, well, maybe, well, in fact, well, yes, I do have a question. So phrasing it as what questions do you have now with the expectation that there are some questions is usually a better way to go. I hope this talk has been interesting and I would like to acknowledge the very helpful contribution that a number of other clinicians have made, including Dr Lynn Jenkins, Sophie Thomas, Lucy Pollock, Gordon Caldwell, who all, through their writings and discussions, have informed the kinds of things I've been saying here. There's more information in the written materials attached to this chapter. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.